0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: I was having a conversation with um, George Snellman on this when he was at the retreat and we were going on a hike. For those of you who are uh, serving at that retreat, you remember that hike. And as we were walking, uh, a conversation came up and it was about finishing the race and some of the challenges that required and we often face when it comes to finishing this race of faith. You know, it's really not easy. And I think some of you know this, but tragically we see over and over of how often people slowly fade away from faith. And perhaps you know someone, I'm sure you do, and you live long enough and you know friends and family members who at once had a vibrant faith, but have completely fallen away from Christ, turned away. And it's disturbing, but we read passages like today and you begin to realize, well, it's not so exceptional. In fact, you might say that it's much more regular than we should imagine. This passage that John speaks of, John the Baptist, is one that, sort of speaks to this idea of finishing faith. And I spoke about it two weeks ago before Easter, and we continue with what John is speaking of. John the Baptist, some of you know his story. Towards the end of his life, he was in prison. He was in prison for speaking against Herod, who had married his sister, essentially. And because he spoke against that ancestral relationship, he was placed into prison. And while he's there, he's really wondering about Jesus. And you might say, you can make the case that he's at least wavering a little bit, doubting to some sense, who is this Jesus? And this is the one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet here is John wavering. But Jesus says that John is greater than all who are born of women. And so therefore Jesus was pretty firm that John is one who clearly would finish this race, and he would, to the very end, despite the fact that there is this wavering. So for me, when I think about John and when I think about myself, and I do put myself into this category because I'm not someone who is beyond wavering. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says that he beats his body and makes it his slave so that he would not be disqualified from the prize. So if Paul is writing words like that saying, I'm going to fight this fight of faith because even I could waver, even I could possibly turn. And I think that's one of the reasons why George and I were discussing this because we don't want to be someone who doesn't finish to the very end. And it is hard to finish to the very end. This passage gives us the means by which one of many, but primarily of how we finish to the end, And we finish this race, we have finishing faith through a a solid foundation of truth. Truth is the means by which and the foundation by which we're able to press forward, even though there could be some very difficult times ahead. So we're going to look at this by looking at three aspects of this truth of finishing faith. First is the limit of this truth in verses 31 through 32. Second is the seal of this truth in verses 33 through 34. And then third is the life or the eternal life of this truth in verses 35 through 36. So first is the limit of this truth in verses 31 through 32. The limit of this truth is not God's word. The limit of this truth is what John describes as earthly truth, earthly words. And it's limited because this earthly truth is, eventually will lead us astray, will come up empty, and eventually will be hopeless. And I use that word eventually because it is possible to have an earthly truth that feels good, that is prosperous, that does make you wealthy, that is incredibly intellectual, and yet eventually it will come up empty. John says Jesus comes from above and he says he is above all. That means that Jesus is truly God and therefore, because he is truly God, when he speaks, he speaks truth because he's from heaven. And then he makes this contrast between Jesus from heaven, who speaks God's word and then earthly truth as distinct from that. There's nothing in between. You have to either believe God is true or not. And so John says this, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So what is this earthly way that John is speaking of? Basically, it's this idea of limited human knowledge. It's the type of knowledge that Nicodemus had when he comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. He knew a lot about God's word. Now, here's the thing about limited knowledge. It's not just limited earthly knowledge of things that have nothing to do with God. You can actually have limited earthly knowledge, even though it has religious words and even God's word. Nicodemus had a limited knowledge that if you were to meet him, would sound completely spiritual and heavenly and religious and even a worshiping of God. No one could doubt that. But yet Jesus is saying, and John the Baptist is saying, that's an earthly knowledge. It's limited in its capacity to understand. John the Baptist, even his knowledge was earthly. Because one thing we know is that John's baptism was not sufficient to actually save anyone. We see this in the book of Acts where uh, we run into John's disciples and their, their baptism is insufficient for them to be saved. They needed the Holy Spirit. So John's baptism alone that Jesus even praises is not enough. That's the way of the world. The way of the world, the way of earthly knowledge is that it can sound good, It can have even the rudiments of spiritual biblical language, but still fall short. Now Solomon, who uh, also understood knowledge, this is what he says in Ecclesiastes. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. The longer you live, the more you begin to realize how true Solomon's words are. And it's often that biblical scholars think Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes towards the very end of his life. Sort of after making all these terrible mistakes, he comes to understand basically all that search for wisdom came to naught. In the end, there was a greater wisdom. And I think that's borne out even in our own personal lives. A few weeks ago, I met a pastor who had served at the same church for over 30 years, and it's rare, again, it's not to say something about myself or anything else, but it is rare for me to personally meet another person in ministry who's been at the same church longer than I have. So I met this one pastor who was there for about 30 years, and we had a conversation, and I said, how did you do it? How did you stay over three decades at one church, be faithful to it, and not grow cynical or weary or just decide to give up? And his answer was, the older I got, the longer I served, the less I knew. The less I, I realized I, I knew nothing. And th- that's the funny thing about wisdom, is that when you're young, when you're in your 20s, when you're in your teens, you, think, you tend to think, I know a lot. You know, I, I have a lot of wisdom. I know a lot about life. And so when parents will say, you know, wait till you're this age. Then you realize how wrong you are. And they say, no, what are you talking about? I know everything. But it's the person who gets older and older. You, you realize, boy, I knew so little when I was young. Isn't that true? That's wisdom. Wisdom is the understanding that you actually are growing in wisdom through the years. And you need that experience in life. Poet T.S. Eliot describes this sentiment well. He says this, all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. The reason that wisdom is so limited is that because it is earthly. That's what John is telling us. How many times have you ever thought, because I think this, if I could only have had my 22-year-old body with my current brain, if I could have that together, it would have been perfect. Everything would have been good. We should never be surprised by the consequences of limited truth. You should never be shocked when you're, if you are an older adult and your child, who is in their teens, thinks they know everything. They know it all. That's where we were at. But that's a earthly knowledge that will not last. It will, it cannot stand the test of time, even if it does last. it prospers only for a moment, and then it's gone. I think we're seeing today in our society the foolishness of the world, the earthliness of the world more than ever. Today, we are told that men can become pregnant. I mean, think about that. 10 years ago, emojis are there with men pregnant on your phone. I mean, that's what our world is telling us today. It used to be deemed, not just illogical, but you, you couldn't even fathom it. And here we are. We're told today, if you say it is dangerous for men to be in women's restrooms, you can get banned from certain elite segments of our society, maybe from your company. This is just the full force of what John is saying when he says, one who is of the earth, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, verse 31. So that's verse 31. If you're of the earth, you speak in an earthly way, meaning that you are God, society is God. We determine what is true. And if society says men can get pregnant, that's truth. That runs absolutely contradictory to scripture, but that should not surprise us and shock us. On one level, yes, it should. But on another level, at least from a biblical perspective, you look at verse 31, and you see this makes sense in light of what John is saying. That's just simply the course of human nature, living out world history. And it will get, not better, but worse. And when I was in Spain, I think I shared this before, but in Spain, you are now officially allowed to marry your dog. You can and it comes with all the implications of that. Um, in certain segments, and I was told this pedophilia is accepted in parts of Europe. Things that you say, this could never happen, and it is happening. In Canada, you can, if you have a certain psychological or emotional condition, a teenager who has a certain level of emotional instability, which I don't know how many teenagers <laughs> have complete stability emotionally, but if you have that, you can request, and possibly even with health professionals saying, maybe euthanasia is a a means by which you can overcome this. These things are happening in our world. It should not shock us if you believe what John is saying in verse 31, who is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. This is the natural occurrence of events logically when a world has said there is no absolute truth, there is no God, there is no God's word. It's whatever culture and society deems as truth, that is true. And so as long as that happens, then anything can happen. And society determines what is right and wrong. Now, we get stuck on that because we think, See, that's the evil part of our society, but at least we have the church, and that's good. And it is true. The church must be the city on a hill, the light of the world. We reflect the light of Christ. But we are just as susceptible to that type of thinking, even though we might not believe that men could get pregnant. We might think of this, especially in a church like ours, in suburbs like ours, where the anti-god of comfort, safety, and prosperity, we worship it. You know, in the Bible, there was, in the Old Testament, there's the god of Molech. Molech was one of the neighboring gods of the Canaanites. And one of the primary ways in which Molech was worshipped was a family would take their son or their daughter and they would sacrifice, they would burn their son and daughter to the god of Molech so that that family could have prosperity. And this is where earthly wisdom is inundating even the church, is we are sacrificing our children to the god of Molech, to the god of safety, security, and prosperity. And we submit our children without defense or recourse To all parts of society and the world, without equipping, without thinking, without questioning, without wrestling with all the different aspects. We put them into all sorts of activities and, and athletics and all sorts of competitions. We move them away from, not the church, but from Christ. Because simply bringing them on Sundays, well, that's a step, it's not enough. It's you, as parents, taking an active, engaging role in discipling your children so that they have a recourse against what is clearly an anti-God world. But we do this without even processing and thinking and praying. And so in this sense, we are no different than someone who says men can be pregnant. Because it's at at the core, an anti-God world perspective of, I don't believe God is ultimate. I believe I am ultimate. I believe prosperity is ultimate. I believe safety is ultimate. Anything we place over the gospel, over the reality of a suffering Christ that we worship, and we do worship a suffering God. Jesus had to die for our sins. And so there is a, um, a false dichotomy that takes place when we think suddenly, I don't ever have to suffer As long as we're in a sinful world, there is still going to be suffering and challenge and trial. I think you've experienced this. Some of you have experienced this. And if you haven't yet, you will, because death is a reality in our world. So the world's way of doing things, while it seems so prosperous and comfortable and good, sometimes it never lasts. It's exactly why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away that is a wonderful promise. No matter how far things veer off, one truth remains, God's word. It will never pass away. Even the heavens will pass away before God's word will pass away. So we can bank and anchor ourselves on God's word, but many messengers will come in the meantime, and they will give you all sorts of messages, and it comes in all different contexts. You know, have you ever noticed religious language is used in many different ways? Some of you have experienced this in your companies. A lot of companies use religious language, mottos, vision statements, mission statements, uh, pep rallies, motivational talks, self-help, improvement, leadership seminars that try to focus you on what is internal within your soul. You could do it. You know why they use that? Because it works. Because we were created for something more than beyond ourselves. And so whether it's religion, finance, sociology, psychotherapy, politics, education, all of these things have this prosperity mentality, a prosperity gospel, including the church. If you do these things, you will be happy, prosperous, comfortable, satisfied. But the problem with all of that is you can for a moment. In fact, you can achieve wealth, comfort, and safety, but it will not last. A pandemic can change it. An economic crisis. A really bad diagnosis from the doctor. All of that will suddenly tear down those those hopes and dreams that you had. And from there, then you're left with the question, what do I do? A lot of times we blame God. Why, God? But the why was not asked when everything was prosperous. The why was expected. It's, this is what I deserve. I worked hard. I did all this. But then suddenly when it's all stripped away, our first instinct is to question God. Why? Why did this happen to me when my whole life has been all about me? If we go down this road, we should never be surprised that when that time comes, of when it is difficult and hard, that you'll be left questioning. Now, here's the thing is that we have the truth of God's Word, and God's Word, as we're told in verses 33 through 34, if we seal it ourselves with our hearts, if we say, I believe this, you will see it impacting your life in dramatic ways and that's what John speaks of next. He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. So once you believe it, you set your seal and what you set your seal is that God is true for he whom God has sent, referring to Jesus, utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. You know, in Jesus' day, and some cultures today, especially some Eastern and mid-Eastern uh, cultures, they still have a seal as a signature. So they would pour out hot wax on either a stamp or on a signet ring, and you'd stamp a document with "This is my signature." In other words, I promise to do this as contract, and if I don't, I will face the consequences of breaking that contract. It could be a punishment of a fine, loss of money, property. Sometimes it could be your life. So your signet ring with your seal shows your full commitment to this. And that's what John is saying is that when you receive the truth of God's word, when you believe Jesus and you say, I am a Christian, you don't just say you're a Christian, you set your seal to it, you're committed to it. That's why God's word is essential for faith. It's not something that we dust off every once in a while because someone says, take out your Bible. This is the means by which we live this life with truth and actually for our ultimate joy. But we have to believe it to be true. And the apostle Paul goes a little further. He says this in Romans 3, 4, let God be true though everyone were a liar. Paul's making this contrast. He's saying, if God is true, then I know definitively that any other truth is not true if it doesn't match up with God's word, which is true. And so for Paul, it's the idea of I'd rather have God's word than any other knowledge in this world. All knowledge is subsidiary and peripheral to God's word. It complements it. And if it doesn't, then they're lying. And that's how we have to think of what we hear in media, what you're hearing in your classrooms from a teacher, from a professor. And just because they have a degree from Oxford and Harvard and Stanford doesn't mean that they have the truth. Let God be true and every man a liar, even those who have multiple PhDs. What Joshua says as he's about to enter into the promised land, you know, the promised land, Canaan, it's surrounded by all these different peoples, Amorites, Hittites, you know, Perizzites, and all these different people surrounding it. And they worshiped all sorts of gods. And Joshua, as he's about to enter, he knows the tendency of the hearts of everyone who he's going to go into this promised land with. He knows that once they get in there, they're gonna be comfortable. And once they get comfortable, Suddenly, all the voices of those around—they're gonna just be amplified, and they're gonna start saying, "Maybe God's word isn't sufficient. Maybe it isn't enough. What about the parasites over there? I sort of want to see what they're worshiping. What, what are their? What's their truth? What is their means of prosperity? And by the way, sometimes it actually is prosperous." They might look over there and say, the Amorites, they seem a little wealthier than me. I, I want to find out what's their strategy. What's their, what's, the, what's their secret sauce by which I can glean how to be wealthy and prosperous? And so when he's doing that, Joshua says this in Joshua 24, 15, right before they're about to enter, he says this to all of Israel. He says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I hope some of you in this room, all of you actually, will be like Joshua, who will say, even if everyone serves and is prosperous and succeeds in all different ways, As for my house, we're gonna stand on God's word. We're gonna determine our lives based on his word as truth. Even if the whole world says that truth is exactly the opposite of what you say, no, we're gonna go this way. We need people who are going to be Joshua's in this world. My friends, you are already hearing and you will hear even more words, earthly words that oppose God's truth you will be tempted to question the validity of God's word over other truths. I mean, society is already telling us that a man is a woman and a woman is a man. That's happening now. Could we have imagined this even five years ago, 10 years ago? Can you imagine what five, 10 years from today is going to look like? 20 years, 30, 40. Truth God's word, the truth of God's word, is being opposed today. And if I've been unwilling to yield to God's word as truth, then eventually I will slowly slide. And I shouldn't be surprised when I see society further slide away from God's word. Now, there are many different ways that this happens, not just when it comes to gender, and think about the idea of divorce. When a husband and wife, or man and woman, they're not husband and wife yet, they come before the officiant, go to the wedding, they say their vows. You know what they do is, one of the things they do is they exchange rings. That ring is, a, think of it as a signet ring. It is the seal. It's their pouring of wax and putting their stamp on it and saying, till death do us part, I promise before God, I covenant that there is nothing that will separate us. This is my vow, my signet ring, my seal. And yet, due to irreconcilable differences, that seal is broken. And so when we think about that, if we think that that is how we shift away from God's word. And even if we were to confront the person and say, here's what God's word says, don't do this. And we still do it. It's, should we be surprised that we see a shifting away from God's word? If this is happening within the church, if we are giving up on marriage, if we're giving up on even discipling our children before the Lord, There is an arbitrariness to our approach to God's word. We want to submit to God's word when it is easy, when it is convenient. You know, another way in which this happens is the way we confront people, have conflict with people. In Matthew 18, many of us perhaps think of Matthew 18 as the church discipline chapter. But you know, it really isn't. You know what it is? It's the how to have a really great friendship chapter. How to have a really great marriage chapter. And what Jesus says is that when you have something against someone, go and talk to them. You know, that's a first line. And that's something that perhaps we don't always want to do. And I think we're all guilty of this. All of us are. Which is when I'm hurt by someone, my instinct is not to talk to them. Not to say, you know, I just want you to know, I love you, I care for you, but there's something you said. Instead, our instinct is to tell this person, do you know what they did to me or said to me? That's called gossip. But we don't want to yield to God's word. We don't want to submit to it. We don't want to believe it, actually. And so if we have arbitrarily chosen, I will choose not to be in a, uh, have a marriage that has adultery in it or to be a homosexual, but I do choose to gossip and not actually confront out of love this person, then am I any different? At the core, there's still an anti-God approach, which is, I'm going to do what I believe to be right, and I don't care what God's word says. It's just that it's arbitrarily chosen. I choose to obey this one and not this one. That approach to God's word is no different than the person or the society that says, I refuse to believe in God and his word. When John says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Whoever receives the testimony of Christ, and the testimony of Christ is the word of Christ. That's how John began his gospel. You know, John said that the word is, became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And so the word of Christ, God's word in scripture, is when we believe God's word, when we finally say, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus. And we saw two people getting baptized last week. It's I'm submitting to the word. When we do that, you're setting your seal. You're saying, I commit to this, everything. I know this to be true. And let everyone else be a liar. God is true. But will I really live my life on that basis? When you set your seal that God is true, you are also recognizing that you're going to fight doubt. You will battle your feelings because the feelings will come. They will ebb and flow. We will arbitrarily want to listen to people who present God's word to us solely when it's convenient to us. So when it sounds good and say, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Until someone says, can I share with you God's word? And in light of how you're living, I don't see that there's this cohesion between your life and what God's word says. It's at that point that we say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want God's word. That arbitrariness is a slow but slippery slope downward to eventual rejection of Christ. It, it's, you know you are turning away from the Lord when God's word is no longer the means by which you evaluate your own heart. It's experience, what society is saying, what you personally are feeling to be right or wrong, not God's word. And that is a dangerous sign. That's the way in which we see all throughout scripture in which people do not finish this race. And I can tell you time and time again where you see and you confront people and you ask people graciously even say, what about God's word? And they say, I don't believe that anymore. I've had people say that to me personally. And you see where they're at today and it's pretty much a rejection of Christ. So when you set your seal, you're saying, I'm going to fight doubt. Doubts will come. John faced that, John the Baptist, in prison. Doubts come, but you fight it, you battle it. Circumstances ebb and flow with your life. If you have not faced trial yet, you will. If you have not heard from the doctor, you will hear from the doctor one day. If you've not had challenges in relationship, you will. But you trust the truth of God's word more than how you feel. We talked about faith in believing in what that looks like with your mind, your heart. It is this constant push. And I'm pressing you to this end to say that believe the truth because that is going to help you when you don't feel the truth. But you have to believe it. And when you believe it and you know it, and then the feelings come, you still believe, even though you don't feel it, eventually the feelings come back. And you the two coalesce i I'm actually excited because we're going to go through John chapter four coming and where Jesus meets the woman at the well and it's what a that's it's literally the perfect example of this idea of this woman at this American woman at the well and Jesus confronts her on the idea if you worship in spirit and truth they the two come together like there's the heart and mind it's It's the perfect place where you see all of it coming together. You believe with everything. But it starts with the doctrine, with the truth. You know it to be true. And because of that, you will not listen to college professors. If you go to a school, and I'm speaking especially to those of you who are preparing to go to college, and I have college age. um, I have one of my daughters is an English major and at a pretty liberal school. She took a class on Othello, and the whole, she said it was a miserable class, because it was Othello, it was all about just a completely anti-God approach. But I'm thankful through the many years of hearing about Christ, she, she was able to process that and realize, that's a bunch of lies. This is about Othello, you know, Shakespeare, And somehow it got converted to transgenderism. (laughs) Literally, that's what Othello was. It's about the transgender agenda. And you think, how does that happen? Because there is a shifting. It just makes sense. So, when you set your seal with the truth of God's word, you have just decided to say, despite all the voices, and emotions, you will believe Christ and his word. You refuse to yield. You've sealed it. And what brings this most to bear is it is rooted on a historical fact. God the Son came to this world, suffered and died on a cross for your sins, gave his life, and he was resurrected. And so it's one of the reasons why you have to be in a context, especially for those of you who are going to move on to another church eventually, go to a a school where you're going to hear different types of preaching, go to a place where you're going to hear Christ. You're going to hear Jesus. That matters a lot for your soul to finish this race. And the Holy Spirit points us to that end over and over again. It is the cross of Christ. If we don't have that, we're, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to be the most pitied of all people. But if we have Christ, we need not be afraid. Let's just go to this last part, the, the life of truth, the eternal life of truth, verses 35 through 36. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever, he, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I could say a lot about these two verses. I'm not going to be able to just for time's sake. So I'm going to focus on one thing. Uh, It's this idea. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son, and here it is, has eternal life. Now, you would think John would have said, whoever believes in the son will have eternal life because eternal life should be future John very intentionally uses a present tense, present tense continuation, meaning that it's supposed to be you experience eternal life today. When you are in Christ today, you have eternal life now. And the impact of this eternal life is meant to infiltrate your soul right now. And let me say that this is one of the primary ways we have finishing faith is to know the truth of God's word that impacts us daily, moment by moment, because it points us to the future of what we will have and what is there today. It's essentially what Ecclesiastes says, he has set eternity in our hearts. And the way that we see little glimpses of this is wonderment and awe over the many things we experience in this world. There's a reason why we love sunrises and sunsets and the golden hour when everything just sparkles and suddenly you're in wonder and awe. There's a reason why so many people are hiking to see the super blooms in California. So when you see that gigantic, beautiful, huge flower field of lilies and irises and all these things, and suddenly you think, wow. Or why some of you, crazy as you are, will go on thrill rides at Six Flags. I don't know why you would do that. Okay. I do know why. Cause there's a desire for wonderment and awe. The, the spectacular. Why we are in awe of seeing pictures of the James Webb's telescope. Why we are in awe of beautiful works of art. Why romance matters so much. And why that we get the, the googly eyes over somebody, you know, when we like them. All of this is because eternity has been set in our hearts. We've been created like this. But here's the problem with all of those things. While they can be wonderful, they never last. Flowers die. Thrill rides end and you go home. Marriage, when you say, I do, you have those googly eyes and everything looks wonderful until you have to live life together and actually see them as they really are. Everything ends in this world. It's the earthly way. It's the problem of experiences of wonderment is that they fade. But look at what we're told in verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has now eternal life, meaning this will never end. When you have Christ, the wonderment and awe, what you've tasted never ends. I still remember, and I've said this before, but being at the retreat, and we were up here playing, singing, and just hearing everybody, there was such an anticipation. That actually happened even last Sunday at Easter. It's very interesting. During worship, when, you, if you could just hear the singing, it was so loud, again, but it's not just the singing, it's the anticipation. It's like, I'm excited to worship because, but then this Sunday was very different. Back to the way he always is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, praise. <laughs> you know, it went back because it never lasts here. But I get little glimmers and, and when, when those tastes happen, it's just wonderful. And all of those things are meant to show us there's going to come a time where it's going to be beautiful. Author Randy Alcorn, tells of the time a couple came to his office and told him they wanted to be able to give more money to church and to missions. And they said, but we've always had this dream for a beautiful home in the country, and we can't seem to shake it. Is that wrong? I've actually been asked similar questions, actually. Is it so wrong to want dot, dot, dot? And this is what he writes. He says, no, it isn't. In fact, the dream of a perfect home is from God. It's just that such a dream cannot and will not be fulfilled in this life. Our dream house is coming. We don't have to build it here. In fact, we can't. Any dream house we try building here will eventually be ravaged by time and floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, carpenter ants, or freeway bypasses, you name it. Some of us are still stuck trying to build a dream house. But it will not last. I remember when we first moved into our uh, our current home, our rented townhome, and it was relatively new. And I remember seeing the ad for it. It was there were no houses around it for a townhome. It was almost a single home. And there was and when we moved when we got in, there was this great view, this beautiful landscape. It was all green because it was February, March, and. There was nothing around but just hills, just these hills are alive with the sound of music. It was like that, just beautiful. And it lasted for about a year until it didn't last. And what happened is that it uh, slowly construction happened, loud construction, miserable construction. And then from that came also just the difficulties of just seeing the just the loudness. And suddenly, our our beautiful view disappeared, and it became an elementary school. Now, for all of our neighbors, that was wonderful for them because they were thinking, great, we can just send our kids to go across the street. But for us, we homeschooled our kids. It didn't matter one bit. But you know what it did give us is that, On Wednesday mornings at 4.30 a.m., the garbage trucks came, always come, every 4.30 to pick up the dumpsters. And so for Sue and I, it would just completely wake us up. And I don't know if you all do this, but every once in a while, we've done it maybe two times where we forget to take out our cans. And so at 4.30 a.m., we've jumped up and said, oh, no, we've got to take out the garbage. We've got to run. And we're literally running downstairs and we think, oh, no, it's the school. It's their garbage, not our garbage. And then at 7.30 a.m., every 7.30, um, almost 4, especially during marching band season, they started playing, these kids, elementary school kids, they're all off pitch. It's terrible, their sound. And I'm just like, oh. There are times where it's Monday, you know, it's generally, uh, maybe I'm resting a little bit more, or whatever, and I hear that, and I think, okay, it's, that's my, uh, I can't stay in anymore. It's... And then... 8 a.m., every day, a loudspeaker, all right, class, hang It is crazy. I had one year of beauty, and then it's gone like that. One day, you know, I, I know I sound old and crotchety. I know I do. But this is the treasures of our world. It never lasts. Never. You know, God is not a Debbie Downer. He wants to give you joy. He he is going to. He will. He has. He just wants to give you more than we're settling for. The person who believes, you have to know that you have eternity set in your hearts forever. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I'm afraid too many Christians are mistaking pleasant inns for homes. If you have eternity set in your heart, it should impact how you prioritize your life, what you invest your time and money in, how you view safety and comfort and prosperity and security. It it should dramatically impact the way that you think about the world and what you're hearing John the Baptist's disciples were telling him, aren't you even bothered that people are now going to Jesus to be baptized? Remember John's answer? He must increase, I must decrease. That's not a phrase of gloom and cynicism. That's a phrase of gladness and joy. He knew that if Jesus increased, that his joy would be greater because he is the Savior. And he did not come to give us misery but to give us eternity, forever joy. We just have to believe it. Jesus died and was resurrected, not for your misery, but for your eternal joy. I hope that truth, if you believe it, you will finish this race, and you will finish well. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you perhaps... And I hope convicted for all of us that we have placed our hopes and our priorities into something that will not last. But you have set eternity in our hearts. Help us not to believe this world's systems and methodologies for prosperity because it lasts but a, a moment. It took the broken body and the shed blood of your son for us to know life eternal, not just for the future, but how it impacts today. You do not, um, you do not act upon us so that we will be miserable in this world. It is truly for our utmost joy. May we believe it. May we not turn from your word. May we not arbitrarily pick and choose that which we will obey. But may we really know that to trust you is to trust all of what you say to us. So we come to this table humbled, but so thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.